There's a lot of stuff on the floor down here, Peter. And like these things, I don't... Oh, it's a spinal column, yuck. And I was thinking maybe I should just bring a broom down here for you if you wanted to sweep up some of the skeletons. I don't know, you know, maybe... Okay. I got you this chicken. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 103 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. So today we got an episode focused on a on a man, uh, and, and an undead ghoul, you might say, uh, who you know, has been somebody we've talked about in, in kind of adjacent ways, tangential ways um, throughout the run of TMK, but we've never actually spent the time necessary to really focus on on, on the man himself. You know, we've talked about his his influence peddling uh, and his power dealings in Silicon Valley and venture capital in the tech sector, right? His kind of growing influence in politics. And, and, and you know, he's always there kind of lurking in the shadows, uh, you know, Pulling the pulling the strings like a puppet master of, of you know companies like Palantir, companies like Enduro, uh, you know many many of the companies, many of the people we've talked about. But it's time to focus on Peter Till himself. The instance for for us finally you know looking at Peter Till is uh, uh, there. There's a new biography of of, of him coming out. Um, soon, written by uh, Max Chafin, who I believe is a tech reporter at Bloomberg. And uh, the latest issue of Bloomberg Business Week has a long excerpt from from this new biography. There's a lot of stuff in there that, that I was familiar with, but there were a lot of nuggets in there that I didn't know about. And that really paint a picture of, of Peter Till as, a, as an even more ludicrous figure than, than I had realized. Uh, you know, th- many of the things he's done, uh, many of the things he believes, but also many of the things, many of the people in his kind of broader circle of accolades um, that are also themselves kind of raising in power. And so... I think it'll be really, you know, really uh, instructive to focus on Peter Till. But before we get into the Peter Till biography, I did want to say something really quick. And, and this is something I've been reflecting on for, for over the weekend, uh, for the last week or so, is I think I'm ready to put a moratorium on the, the self-deprecating apologia that we tend to all do around doom-pilling. We, we, we oftentimes kind of, you know, in this kind of self-joking way say, oh, we're always so doom-pilled here on TMK. We, you know, our analysis is doom-pilled. I'm, 
I think that is actually doing us more harm than good um, to talk about the way that we analyze the world as doom pill because it's 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 not the case that we are uh, being dystopians right that we are somehow um, talking about things in a speculative way uh, you know doing fiction no what we are doing is description right we are doing cold sober analysis of material conditions and it's not our fault that that oftentimes appears to be doom-pilled, right? It's the fault of the world, right? And it's the fault of actually confronting the world um, with clear eyes and with sober senses. Uh, but by calling it doom-pilled, I think it it falls into this criticism of, of critique criticism of critique that is oftentimes saying that it's cynicism or it's pessimism rather than what it really is, is materialism and realism, right? Um, I, I thought about a lot about this when I wrote my book. Um, you know, the coda of my book begins, this book will be called dystopian. It might even be accused of alarmism, right? And I think that's because we live in a culture that even still now, while there is a growing recognition that the tech companies do not have our best interest at heart, at heart. There is still this growing, or, or rather this very fixture in our culture of what di the historian David Nye calls the American technological sublime, which not only equates technology with progress, but becomes a thing of divine beauty. Through that, it, it looks down on any criticism. It makes it where optimism or acquiescence are the only reasonable options that we're presented with. And anything else is just doom-pilled nonsense, right? But I, I'm, I'm done with that, right? I'm done playing into that. I'm done ceding that ground to the critics of criticism. Uh, and instead, you know, if what we talk about on TMK appears to be doom-pilled, if it appears to be dystopian, I think that we have to realize that that is not a feature of our analysis, but that is a feature of a reality, uh, which is you know, much more shitty and glitchy and gritty and violent and venal than we often want it to be or that we are ready to accept it as. And I think that we, we won't go beyond that reality until we are able to accept that, accept that it's not just merely a doom-pilled analysis, but accept that it's something that has to be changed, right? So that, that's just my, my, little, my little opening monologue rant um, about the apologia for doom-pilling, which I'm saying now, I'm putting a moratorium on it. Which I think is fine, you know, because, and also it's like, it's okay to, at times when you do an analysis of the state of affairs, feel overwhelmed and feel lost and feel at wit end, at wit's end, you know, that it's fine to feel those things. The question is, is like, what do you do with the feelings, right? It's not fine to retreat and to harden up and to not do something. It is okay, though, to feel in moments or for some period of time that things are hopeless, you know, so long as that does not become a reason for you to um, justify an action, right? So, to, and so to me, really, even if someone is, even, even when, you know, people do and things get called doom-pilled, I'm like, that's fine, because I think a lot of the people I know were some of the most active working in their communities first, working in orgs, you know, all over the place are also some of the people who have, I think, like a rosy-eyed but dark, very dark and depressing uh, perspective on like what's around the corner. 
for us with regards to climate change, with regards to civil liberties, with regards to the digital world, with regards to, you know, social programs, uh, with regards to infrastructure, you know, whatever they're focusing on, whatever they're organizing around, whatever they're interested in, you know, analyzing. It's just, it matters like what you do with those feelings more than anything else. Exactly, exactly. You know, it's it, uh, having a sense of doom and gloom is not the same as succumbing to uh, nihilism and fatalism, you know. In fact, like we feel that way because we are not nihilistic and we are not mm-hmm. fatalistic, right? Like mm-hmm. like if if we were just if we if we were just giving up or if we were just advocating uh, giving up in the face of a surge of of evil or whatever, um, then yeah, you know, fine, you know, that that wouldn't be doom pilled though, right? I, I think that the 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 rhetoric around doom pill doesn't does risk sliding into the abyss, right? The abyss of nihilism, right? There's that there's that, you know, old old fra- phrase, right? That old aphorism that, you know, you stare into the abyss and it stares back into you. Right. But like I think that, you know, a lot of the you know, rhetoric around doom pilling is, uh, you know, just a step away from advocating jumping into the abyss, right? Being like, all right, fuck it, right? Like, but that's not where we're at uh, with TMK. And that's not where we're at. That's not where our comrades are at, right? Whether it's you or dear listeners, um, the people we have on the show, the people we interact with, right? The activists, the analysts, the people who really care, right? There's an, there's a, there's a, a surplus of care, um, which, you know, I'm, I'm ready to be care pilled. I'm not doom pilled. I'm care pilled, right? I care right. a lot <laughs> about the world and I care a lot about what happens in the world, which is why I spend, why we spend so much time talking about it and trying to, trying to provide that, that sober analysis of material conditions while also, uh, that ruthless criticism um, that Marx himself, you know, talks about as as something that's truly necessary, right? The, a, a ruthless criticism of everything existing, one that doesn't shrink from its findings or shrink from confrontation with the powers that be, um, as Marx puts it. And that, you know, I just I just wanted to start the show with that, right? It's a moratorium on doom pilling. I will no longer apologize uh, for the conclusions that we reach on this show through our through our analysis. That it's nothing to be apologizing about. I think we can now transition to uh, the the man himself, Peter Till, who, you know, in, in this Max Chafin, uh, in this excerpt from the biography, you know, Peter Till has a, a, a quote in here, which is a perfect transition point where he said, Peter Till says, quote, I'd rather be seen as evil than incompetent, right? And I think that that tells us everything, right? Is that, you know, Peter Till is a caricature in a, in a way um, because it, it's like, you know, I think he's done away with this uh, this like myth building of you know the the the, the tech entrepreneur or the tech founder uh, mm-hmm. who wants to make the world a better place, right? Mm-hmm. And has this kind of like self mythologizing about how they are you know 
uh, you know, they, they, they are improving the world. They're doing progress, right? It's like, no, Peter Till is just leaning into this idea of like, I'd rather be seen as evil than incompetent, right? Like, I'd rather be, you know, fucking Lex Luthor out here. Yeah, I've got plans for world domination. And you call me evil, that's fine. But you can't call me dumb. You can't call me stupid, right? Like, Incredibly you know, him, smart. Yeah, I mean, he is. I mean, and, and to his credit, right, or maybe giving him too much credit, still to, to be set or decided, I think, or maybe as we go through the excerpts of the book, we'll decide. But, you know, like he has achieved um, a good deal more than other ideologues in his position have immediately. I mean, like, of course, there are more consequential right-wingers with money over the long scale of American history, or even over the last few decades. But in the last the last decade that Paul, that I was about to say Paul Krugman, that Peter Thiel has been, <laughs> that has, been <laughs> has been active, right? He's managed to ingratiate himself pretty intimately with the White House, right? With Silicon Valley, at various times adopt and discard uh, images and perceptions about himself. And like you said, as an entrepreneur, as a builder, as a founder, as a benevolent, diverse, cosmopolitan figure that have obscured you know, I think what has always really been there for him since the earliest days, and as Chafkin reports. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, this this uh, the excerpt from this biography starts with the the meetings between Peter Till and Donald Trump, right? Which is also, I think, also kind of telling as well. Just like you know, this is part of Peter Till's brand is that he, you know, he was the one Silicon Valley power player who was willing to be the you know the quote unquote token conservative in Silicon right. Valley, who was willing to you know lean really heavily into MAGA and into Trump. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, like, you know, as we'll go through, yeah, this reflects a lot of what he believes in, um, but also reflects that a lot of what he believes in is just the, the pure venality of, uh, you know, that venalness of money, right? Like yeah. accumulating wealth and accumulating power, um, mm -hmm. which, you know, makes him a, a, a perfect fit for the modern day Republican Party, which is also a party that is solely focused on accumulating power and wealth and you know you know we don't got to hand it to them but you do got to say as a party they you know they know how to do that they know how to accumulate power and wealth and wield it to their end and also there's not too much daylight between him and other people in silicon valley i think like mm -hmm. there is a huge effort to paint silicon valley as this bastion of liberalism with eclectic characteristics you know, but when you really dig through the mock, like Mike Davis says, like, you know, a lot of commentators would say about Silicon Valley, but also about California in of itself, you know, um, it is not as liberal as you think. And that a lot of the people hold uh, reactionary viewpoints or can be easily mobilized for reactionary viewpoints, partly because of that venality, right? Or because of, because of that, like, eagerness or willingness to immediately cave or shift when money is involved, right? I mean, the idea that Silicon Valley is a bastion of liberalism that won't suddenly, is, is it reminds me of the way that people might have thought that bankers might have been like, you know, some bastion of liberalism because they were closely associated with the Clinton administration, which makes no sense, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, um, it also, it's like similar to uh, the discussions around like, whether, you know, if you step back and you ask 
or I mean, it's on a slightly different frame, but it ends there. You'll see the point at, at the end, right? If we were to look at the media, for example, right? And say, okay, we can estimate how the media votes based on whether or not, um, you know, uh, reporters are liberal and vote for the Democrats or vote for uh, the Republicans and are conservative, right? But, you know, even if like 80, 90% of journalists did one party or the other, that wouldn't tell you anything. The thing that tells you something is like, what is the structure in which they can express the views? Are they able to express the views, right? And what views actually get expressed? Those are the views that get expressed, the ideas that get expressed, the sentiments that express are not one-to-one with what the you know, reporters or journalists actually have. And similarly, the idea that like Silicon Valley is a bastion of liberalism because it's in the Bay Area or because the, the, the individual like pronouncements of a few of them, ignoring like what the actual pressures are on a lot of people in that area and industry, right? To have weird uh, viewpoints about control, about the orga- how society should be organized, about how resources should be distributed, about how, you know, the role of the public and the private spheres, right? Those lend themselves to a certain t- kind of politics more than being like, I vote Democrat. Or I vote mm. Republican. You know, those feel more like veneers, like like disguises almost. If that that I mean, that may be too cynical, but that that's usually how it feels to me. You know, no, I think that's right, though. I think that's right. I think we can't overestimate the 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 fact that um, so much of modern day Silicon Valley. I mean, obviously, this stretches back, right? Like in our episodes with Kelsey uh, on the military, you know, Silicon Valley complex, right? We know that the origins of Silicon Valley is in the military, right? It's in these military contracts. But if we can kind of put a a, a point of of difference here of like the modern day uh, notions of Silicon Valley really find their origins in in the election of Obama. Right. Like, you know, it was, you know, this this kind of modern uh, mythology and uh, and perception of Silicon Valley as this bastion of liberalism. You know, in part, it comes from. Yeah. Yeah. They all, you know, they vote overwhelmingly Democratic. Um, You know, they they give a lot of money to 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 Democrats, right? Especially the you know top executives, right? People like Eric Schmidt. Right. Like like they are they are Democrat insiders. Yeah, I think a lot of that is, I think we can also paint a lot of that as, um, yeah, they see themselves as do-gooding, you know, Clinton-style liberals, right? Like, liberals in that, like, Bill and Hillary Clinton model of that of that neoliberalism. Um, but also, I think part of that is that, you know, they just, they had an opportunity to give a lot of money to an Obama administration over eight years and feel really good about it. But also that was a way of doing lobbying, right? That was a way of getting themselves contracts, of getting into the halls of power. And so they were able to do that and brag about it. Um, whereas when Trump comes along, they had to be a little bit more circumspect about it, right? They couldn't be so out and about about it, uh, except unless you're Peter Till, right? That's really how he made a name Mm -hmm. for himself is he essentially treated Trump in the same way that they treated Obama as, you know, as a, as a, not as somebody that they actually support, but as somebody that they give support to because he opens doors for them. You know, the, this Chafin biography, the excerpt from this starts with, you know, that faded meeting, uh, you know, very early uh, in Trump's presidency. I think it was before, he, it was after he got elected, but perhaps before he w- even took office where, you know, it was that round table of the tech executives um, meeting with Trump at Trump Tower, you know, and it was all organized, you know, by, by Peter Till, right? You know, 
bringing together, uh, you know, Larry Page and Jeff Bezos and Cheryl Stam Stamberg and, you know, all, all of, you know, all of these people, Elon Musk, right? Like it was just a, a round table of people that, uh, what I would have done to <laughs> be in that room. And, uh, I, I, we'd be living in a better time. I, I might not have been around to see it, but <laughs> all right, Reverend Taller. <laughs> I just gotta say, uh, you know, the the weathermen are alive and well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I I also I think it is. One thing I do love doing is looking at like the photojournalist who understands what the assignment is, you know, and who goes to these meetings and gets the image of them grimacing or gets the image of them at some celebration covered in champagne or gets the image of them looking like a maniac with the shadow on, you know, those are the best ones. I love, I, I really do. That's like a guilty pleasure of mine. Like sometimes I've been late with stories because I just spend time on Getty looking at uh, images, be like, oh, this is, <laughs> this, this is a good one. Yes. Yes. And, 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 and yeah, it starts, you know, there, there is this, you know, a headline, that had a business a business insider photo of this meeting you know uh in the very beginning before they kicked all the journalists out of the room uh mm -hmm. you know of of uh Sandberg uh Page and Bezos grimacing under this headline of you know quote this perfectly captures the first meeting between Trump and all the tech CEOs who opposed him uh you know but th that that is also part of that myth building as well that right like they somehow opposed him or that they're grimacing because they have to meet with this with this, you know, this orange buffoon, this Cheeto in chief, you know, but, but in reality, you know, what you, what you learn uh, in this meeting is that, you know, they, they got, you know, once they kicked all the journalists out of the room, uh, you know, they get, they got going just talking about, you know, policy and, and the tech CEOs talking about what, what they want and what they need, right? Like, you know, the ex, the, the excerpt, you know, the Chafin biography talks about how, you know, after the press left, according to notes from the meeting and the accounts of five people familiar with its details, uh, the tech CEO, uh, the tech CEOs followed Trump's lead. They were polite, even solicitous, thanking Trump profusely and repeatedly as he cracked wise at their expense, right? Like he's nagging, you know, Trump is nagging them, you know, talking about how, you know, Tim Cook, oh, Apple's got too much money on their balance sheets. So, you know, ribbing Jeff Bezos for owning the wall, the Washington Post or whatever. But then, you know, it goes on to say, you know, Trump moved on to talking about mass deportations. Quote, you know, we're going to do a, a whole thing on immigration, Trump said. We're going to get the bad people. You know, these were promises that Till supported and the tech CEOs ostensibly opposed. Now, in private, no one objected. They implied that it would be fine to crack down on illegal immigrants as long as Trump would be able to supply their companies with enough skilled foreign workers. Uh, Tim Cook said, you know, quote, we should separate the border security from the talented people. He suggested the U.S. try to cultivate a, quote, monopoly on talent. Google former executive chairman Eric Schmidt, a longtime friend of Till's, despite being a major Democrat Party donor. And, you know, again, go back to our our, our episode, especially our um, our uh, premium episode, the 101st one, uh, where we talked extensively about Eric Schmidt's uh, embeddedness within the Pentagon, uh, mm -hmm. you know. 
Eric Schmidt offered a way to brand Trump's carrot and stick approach to immigration reform in a friendlier way. Quote, call it the U.S. Jobs Act, he offered. When conversations shifted to China, none of the CEOs urged restraint. Many began offering their own gripes, right? So it's like once the photojournalists are out of the room, once right. the, you know, the note takers for hegemony are out of the room, um, you know, then they got down to the real business of, of taking that mask off and saying like, all right, you're in power now. Uh, you know, what can we get from you? What can you get from us? Let's do business. Let's do deals. deals. Yeah, you know, and I think that I think that it is also like pretty interesting, illuminating that like in that piece, right? They also talk about how the advisors they look back to that moment, they talk about that moment as like proof for for feel having a role and being like, okay, look, you you hate. You hate these CEOs because they're globalists, right? They hate America. They hate, the, you know, Bannon said they were supposed to be the biggest enemies we got, and they're basically making a nationalistic case. Um, you know, Bannon told Chafkin this, right? It was like they finally got invited to lunch with the quarterback of the, te- of the football team. I think it's interesting to note. And also, like, think about whether or not part of that is like, oh, we're in the room. We just have to put on a face so we can still get what we want. Or, like... The reality of the situation, which I think it is, which is that they actually just, you know, they will only speak about social issues when they think it'll buy them goodwill and capital outside with the public. But at the end of the day, they don't give a fuck about a lot of these social causes and they donate to them insofar as it's easier to work with the Democrats but like not necessary. I mean, like Schmidt is friends with Thiel and they have very divergent uh, so, you know, patronage networks, right? You know, all of these people are friends and pals with you, each other to the extent that they talk, they collaborate, they allegedly plan, right? There's reporting of meetings and trying to figure out things that they have that they need to do to organize the industry or labor arrangements or non-compete stuff, Um but not formally, because that would be illegal and that'd be collusion. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> but you know, there's 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 a camaraderie that I think it's uh, dismissed as conspiratorial when it's like, I mean, the only time they meet is not in that room. It'd be a little stupid to think that like the only time they ever got together in one room to talk with each other is when Trump called them into the White House, right? And the fact that in closed doors they say one thing and they make a nationalistic case. I think like you should look at that and step back and say they probably that's like the probably the real viewpoint, right? Like if they really didn't want to, they would find a way to still convince the president or convince his advisors to do the monopoly on talent idea while also advocating for these social causes that they claim to. But they don't. And that to me suggests that the social causes are, you know, um, sprinkles, right? Mm-hmm. And that the real thing, like what you know, for example, more Weigel's talked about with regards to Palantir is that these tech companies are trying to build an, uh, are trying to triangulate a new position for a nationalist political economy where they have a key and central role. Whether it's because they're making the killing machines, whether it's because they're uh, providing the data centers, whether it's because they're hosting the computing infrastructure, whether it is because uh, because they have the personnel, uh, they're educating or training the personnel, or they're acquiring them from overseas. These companies are trying to ingratiate themselves as key parts, and the way to do that is to do this nationalistic hurrah um, that focuses on capital and talent and resources flowing through them. 
Exactly, exactly. I mean, these these government contracts and, and especially, you know, military contracts, but also contracts from all the three letter agencies is there, you know, that's the lifeblood. Right. They need that. They need that. No matter if it's Obama, Trump or Biden uh, in the presidency, uh, they, they need that. And and that's what they ultimately care about. Of course, there was a lot of reporting at this at the time around how Till was, you know, once Trump was elected, right, Till had gone all in on Trump, right? He spoke at the Republican National Convention. Uh, you know, he was really making a name for himself coming out strong uh, as, a, as a Trump supporter. And, you know, this this paid dividends, right? We got to think about this as every Till's, uh, you know, every move by Till as an investment, right? My man is ultimately a venture capitalist and he saw he saw Trump as a startup, Right. Uh, as, as somebody who would do disruption, right? Disruptive innovation. And, and, and so, you know, he put in his capital. He invested the money in the Trump. And, and when it paid off, right? When Trump became this unicorn, uh, that took off and took office, you know, Till cashed in his prize, right? So like, you know, when Trump was elected, uh, you know, a week after the 2016 election, uh, Chafe, uh, Chafe uh, reports that Till reported the Trump Tower with a half dozen aides. Um, they were Till's type, young, smart, and attractive. They look like male models, Bannon recalls. <laughs> Just, there are so many little funny nuggets in here. But uh, importantly, and this is a man we'll come back to later. Um, and this was a this was a a, a a kind of a new figure to me um, in this in this kind of orbit is Blake Masters, right? Who's a longtime aide of Peter Till's, uh-huh. um, who was the co-writer of Till's best-selling book Zero to One, uh-huh. um, which you know. And Peter Till and Blake Masters, you know, were part of the transition team. Uh, Masters was given the job of suggesting appointees who could drastically limit the scope of, quote, the administrative state. Now, this is where we start getting to some some little nuggets that uh, that that really got me. Um, so, you know, Chafkin talks about how, you know, quote, as a political animal, Till possessed instincts ca- that could seem almost comically bad. His list of 150 names for senior level jobs included numerous figures who were too extreme, even for the most extreme man- uh, members of Trump's inner circle. Many were ultra libertarians or reactionaries. Others were more difficult to categorize. You know, uh, ba- <laughs> there's some... Uh, Steve Bannon was doing some uh, some revenge here by giving so yeah. many juicy quotes to to Chafkin, right? <laughs> yeah, he's a messy little shit. I like it yeah. when he speaks to the press. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he's 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 a messy bitch. He loves drama. <laughs> right? You know, and also also Blake Masters is important as a sort of another reminder about like this whole silicon the myth that Silicon Valley is constructed for it. He's one of Thiel's course. You know, core mentees, lieutenants, whatever you want to call it, foot soldiers, yes men, vampires. Um, <laughs> you know, he's uh, he is uh, he's part of that brood, right? And he's um, he is a guy who's running a familiar. Jeremy says, <laughs> <laughs> a, pet. Yeah. a little pet. Yeah. And um, he is uh, he's running for senate, right? Him and J.D. Vance were both given $10 million by uh, Peter Thiel, um, and he was running for Senate. He emailed sometime in the summer. Um, yeah, and, and, and in his, Arizona. He's running right, in Arizona. Against and a Democratic and, uh, incumbent, right? He's mm-hmm. And it's important to note that his thing 
uh, you know, we were just talking about migration. He does not support, you know, a lot of what the other tech CEOs do for trying to prioritize visas, work visas for tech uh, technology firms under the, pre- under the, you know, complaint that like most of the talent is overseas. And so we need to attract them here with attractive terms for employment and with generous, you know, migration quotas or numbers or, you know, whatever we can use to, to bring them over. He opposes the visas, right? He opposes visas. He opposes expanding yeah, any sort of migration, even if they're foreign talent for these companies. Uh, because again, Part of that nationalistic political economy. I think Thiel is different from the rest of Silicon Valley because he's a little bit more honest about it. But that's the logical endpoint of where it goes. Like these people are not going to, these people are fine with foreign talent for now because they want to compete with China and with India, right? And they want to undermine the, the, the leaps they're making, especially in China, towards alternatives to Silicon Valley. But at the end of the day, they want something that is centered in the United States, made in the United States staffed by American workers, right? Mm-hmm. In a very nationalist way. Yeah, yeah. Like Blake Masters goes on these long rants on on Twitter as well as in interviews and 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 oh, now yeah. like these uh, political ads, right, for his oh, yeah. uh, his Senate run, uh, oh. where he, yeah, he just you know it's all anti-immigration, uh, anti-diversity, right? Like uh, anti everything, you know. And 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 he you know like Till, he takes aim uh, at. The, at uh, tech companies that you know, namely and and specifically tech companies that Peter Till does not have investments in, and they're actually co- and are competitors to Peter Till's investments, right? So mm-hmm. so there's a there's there's a lot of strategy involved in that as well. It's not while it's absolutely unhinged, it's not uncalculated, it's not unplanned, um, which really adds a little you know, which makes it more terrifying, right? Because it's not just a uh, a lunatic out there doing whatever, you know, it's a, it's a lunatic out there with a plan right. <laughs> and they're putting it into action, you know, and, and should also say as well, and we'll get into this later in the episode, but, you know, Blake Masters is also um, the president of the Teal Foundation uh, and the chief operating officer of Teal Capital. So, you know, he is Peter Till's right-hand man. He's an acolyte of Peter Till, uh, even much more so than someone like Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, we have to understand Zuckerberg is also, uh, you know, he trained at the at the knees of, uh, of Peter Till. Getting into some of the people that Till put forth as appointments for these senior-level jobs in, the, in Trump's administration... For Trump's science advisor, um, you know, Chafkin writes, Till suggested two climate change deniers, Princeton physicist William Happer and Yale computer scientist uh, David Gallertner. Um, for the head of the food, and this made me choke on my water when I was oh. reading. I had to give myself the, I had to do a self Heimlich. <laughs> so for the head of the Food and Drug Administration, Till offered, among other names, Balaji Sirnivasan, an entrepreneur with no obvious experience in government who seems skeptical that the FDA should exist at all. Of course. Uh, Sirnivasan had tweeted and later deleted, quote, for every thalamide, many dead from slow approvals. <laughs> when <Of course>. that, <laughs> looking at <laughs> putting forth Balaji Sirnivasan, which, you know, listeners, if you don't know, one of the most unhinged venture capitalists uh, around today. Also um, not even a good investor, if you look no. at the track record. Not really sure why anyone listens to them other than 
the attention hacking they do with outrage and bullshit. I mean, they they really like it. I'm, I'm going to stop myself. I'm, just, I'm going to rant. It's not going to be productive. But <laughs> just, a, just a shitty person and a shitty investor and a shitty twi- uh, tweeter, you know? Oh, my <laughs> God. My man is one of the dumbest people on Twitter. One of the, one of the dumbest people with like millions of dollars at his disposal. Looking at uh, Balaji Sirnivasan's tweets has convinced me that there's an idiot test you have to take uh, in order to you know reach the upper echelons of, of venture capital in Silicon Valley. Um, you you have to prove that you are a wide eyed baby uh, in order to reach those upper echelons. <laughs> His tweets read like uh, it's something like a, a group of kids would get together and say, like, this is what's going to sound smart. Yeah, yeah. Say it like that. Then he, <laughs> then he tweets it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, it's just fucking it's it's so wild. And um, it, it's it's really telling as well what, you know, what Peter Till is trying to do here. Right. He's, you know, he's trying to. S- staff the administration you know this is part of being a transition team right is that you put forward a bunch of names of people that are your friends um people that owe you favors people that are under your thumb in some way uh and you put forth these names in hopes that at least some of them get picked up right so that you've got nothing but you know nothing but friends in in the uh in in places of power but it's also telling that till's picks were so extreme and so radical that a lot of them didn't didn't get off the ground right like like even for for people like trump and and steve bannon bannon notes that it was unrealistic to nominate um, a provocateur who implied he wanted to get rid of the FDA to run said agency. Um, You know, uh, doing so would have gotten Trump branded a radical and not the good kind, right? So, I mean, it's really telling when you, when, you know, Till's putting forth names that even people like Bannon and Trump uh, are like, Oh, uh, hold up there. Let's, let's you know, slow your horses. We got we got to dial this back a little bit. You know, it, it's just really showing how ludicrous um, Till is, and and how much he was really trying to play his hand. Right? He was really trying to, uh, you know, put forth the most radical people he could think of, because even even people by comparison a little bit less radical would still be extreme and would still be. Uh, you know, aligned with Till's interests. I think it's also very funny that you know the the you know the climate change denier uh, and and physicist William Happer, who did end up getting appointed um, at a at a lesser position as senior director for emerging technologies at the National Security Council, um, said of Till, you know. Till you know, praised Till for quote refuse his refusal to be cowed by political correctness, <laughs> but then also added uh, in a quote to Chefkin, uh, "I never thought of Peter as very strong in technology, unless you narrow down the definition of technology to ways to profit from the internet." <laughs> Which I mean, it, you know, who need you know friends like these, right? Friends that uh, you know still have nothing but bad things to say about you. <laughs> Do you, do you imagine how much more different the world would have been if PayPal had just fallen flat? You know, Peter Till made all that money from PayPal. Elon Musk made money from PayPal. Like if PayPal had just like fucking just fallen flat, what would, how much more, how much different the landscape of the world would look like right now? But you never know because assholes like that are, you know, find themselves in situations where they can profit and 
people fucking love them for it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There, there, there is so much dumb and unfortunate luck involved uh, in that. And and you're right. I mean, like you know, it's the you know, it's the PayPal mafia is what it's called, right? The you know, people like Peter Till, uh, Elon Musk, someone we don't hear as much about, but still, but is very active. Uh, Max Levkin, um, who's uh, another one of the co-founders of PayPal. You know, these people hold enormous power and influence in Silicon Valley um, and also are major shareholders, if not the major shareholder in companies like, you know, uh, Airbnb uh, and Facebook uh, and Stripe, right? Like many of these, uh, you know, unicorn, decacorn, uh, you know, centacorn, <laughs> you know, companies, right? These billion, 10 billion, 100 billions of dollars of, comp- you know, worth companies. So much of it can be traced to, to, to the PayPal mafia. <laughs> I think it is also very funny that, uh, you know, Happer, uh, you know, the, the climate change denying physicist uh, left the Trump administration in 2019 um, complaining that uh, he'd been undermined by White House officials who had been, quote, brainwashed into believing in the dangers of climate change, which, you know, again, all of this is just evidence for uh, the extreme ultra-libertarian, uh, hyper-reactionary viewpoints uh, and people that Till loves to surround himself with uh, and works very hard and spends a lot of money to put into positions of power. People that think the Trump administration were a bunch of do-gooder liberals, right? You think that, like, what, one of them came from Yale and the other one came from Princeton? Like, immediately they're like, oh, these are stodgy academics that are probably going to well, not, I guess stodgy isn't the adjective you want to use when you're considering like these, these radical liberals at these, you know, Ivy League schools when, as you've mentioned before, and we've mentioned before in conversations that academics are tend to be anything but. But, but no, I mean, that, 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 that's, that is also a very good point here as well that, you know, the, the idea that uh, academia is filled with these like Marxist uh, leftist uh, or social justice liberals um, is, you know, uh, very much not the case. And it's very disciplinary uh, specific um, as well. And it's, it's also no coincidence that the, the disciplines that, that tend to themselves have the most power and influence within academia and within these Ivy League institutions, uh, disciplines like computer science, disciplines like uh, economics, um, the business schools are them are, are themselves bastions for uh, neoliberalism, neoconservatism, um, and much worse uh, as well. Right? Again, it kind of it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning around this, like you know, th- this drive towards the accumulation of power and wealth, um, and this being a ultimate motivation for these people, right? For these these people that are venal at their very core, who see venalness, uh, you know, in the uh, venal in the sense of, you know, being overwhelmingly motivated by money uh, as a virtue, right? They see this as a virtue. (laughs) 
you know, talking about the PayPal mafia, uh, you know, we talked extensively about Palantir. I don't think that we've ever really mentioned that actually like Palantir had its origins as an, as a, as a way of trying to sell the U S government on the kind of data mining technologies that were originally developed at PayPal. Right. So it's not like PayPal, uh, you know, is this, we're, we're just a company that exists to make, you know, online transactions more convenient, more frictionless, uh, you know, and kind of, you know, be this underlying financial infrastructure for e-commerce, right? Like, yeah, I mean, that's how they made their money. But also, you know, a lot of this was ways of developing this kind of data mining technology that that then would be spun off through companies like Palantir and, and broadened in its scope um, and in its application, right? Looking at ways of trying to sell this technology for more lucrative contracts, right? Lucrative contracts through the government. Palantir was seeded, uh, you know, provide was given, you know, given a lot of seed money by by Till. Uh, you know, famously also received funding from um, the CIA. Uh, so you know. It can forever have that mark of being a CIA-backed company. Uh, and through this, right, cultivated that kind of cloak and dagger reputation. But this gets at a really important point here that we that we started our discussion of Till with, um, is that part of Palantir's grift and part of their success was encouraging reporters, journalists, to write stories about its technology um, you know, named for the all-seeing orb in Lord of the Rings, uh, but write stories about its technology as a technical equivalent to those magical all-seeing orbs, right? As something that actually operated and worked, uh, you know, perfectly uh, and, and in this kind of um, uh, omniscient kind of way. And, and this, this was a, you know, this was a big success. And this is where that quote from Till comes from, you know, I'd rather be seen as evil than incompetent. This is a quote coming from Till explaining, um, as Chafkin puts it, to a friend when asked about the company's marketing strategy, right? He wanted people to believe that Palantir could do things that it actually could not do. I wouldn't be surprised in pitch meetings if he used, uh, I forget who it is. I want to say it's uh, <clears throat> Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah, any significantly advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah, I mean, that. no, you're exactly right to point that out, Jeremy, because this, uh, this was part of the marketing of Palantir, right? Is that it wanted people to see the technology as magic. And while, you know, some of the early profiles of Palantir were very, you know, in like Wired and, and TechCrunch and places like this were very like uh, giddy, right? Like, oh my God, like th this, this is such like, this is such a huge advancement in technology. This is so powerful. Wow. Right. But that's not the point because there was also a lot of criticism and this gets into that I. Uh, that idea that like uh, the STS scholar Lee Vinsel is called Crita hype, right? Where even critics tend to buy into the hype and through that uh, prop up uh, the belief that these these companies and their technologies can do much more than they actually can. But no, this is this is a this was a a, a very savvy marketing strategy by Peter Till and by Alex Karp, the you know CEO of Palantir, to not only make the public think that Palantir was actually equivalent to the all-seeing orbs, but importantly, to make 
the government think that it was? And in particular, the Pentagon and the three-letter agencies like ICE, uh, like the DHS, um, think that its technology could provide uh, the kind of uh, capacities that they were looking for and through that gain these lucrative contracts. But while Palantir you know, per- perpetuated this myth of their technology as being, you know, uh, magical in its power. In reality, there there are deep questions about to what extent the technology actually worked or, or whether it even worked. Palantir, you know, through Till was hoping to, you know, compete for these contracts with the U.S. Army, but they didn't get to that point through sheer competency, you know, the contrary to Till's statement that he'd rather be seen as evil than incompetent, uh, it, it ended up being that, you know, the military was really kind of shutting out Palantir from a lot of these, uh, you know, a lot of these contracts. They wanted to, you know, the, the military wanted to work with the, the kind of defense contractors like Raytheon that they were familiar with you know, familiar with and knew had a track record um, rather than this this upstart. The Trump administration and through, importantly, through Till's ties with, with uh, both Palantir and the Trump administration provided an opportunity uh, for Palantir to actually get a seat at the table and to begin competing with these big prime defense contractors. And so, um, you know, Chevkin reports that, quote, just before election day in 2016, a federal judge had ruled in a lawsuit brought by Palantir that the army would have to re bid its database contract and consider Till's company. The court order didn't mean the army would buy Palantir software, only that it would give it a hard look, um, as Hamish Hume, the company's lawyer on the case, put it. And so this is a really important feature here where uh, this is another case of a, of a lawsuit brought by a company that felt like it, was, it wasn't done, it wasn't given a fair shake at these, you know, lucrative multi-billion dollar military contracts um, and and through Till's ties with the Trump administration were successful in getting Palantir a seat at the table. Yeah, you know, that, that the 2016-2017 period is really interesting, right? Because you have, you know, I remember there was the, um, you remember that piece? It was the, um, is Palantir crystal, is Palantir's crystal ball just smoke and mirrors? It was in the New York uh, mag uh, by, let me pull it up actually, by um, Sharon Weinberger. It's a really good piece asking, you know, does Palantir work, right? Is is it, are we just is it just something that's hyping people up? Is it a or does it actually provide, you know, insights and analytics that are necessary for the military or that justify the really aggressive prog- uh, process by which it secures contracts, right? And there's a section in there, pretty interesting, that talks about this, you know, contract, right, where it sued the army because it said that it was excluded from going to the next stage of a contract that would have replaced um, replaced a system, right? But then also that year, you know, as it's making these inroads in 2016, 2017, as it's making inroads with the Trump administration, slightly burning a bridge with the army by suing them, right? Uh, Trump, Trump wins, right? Uh, becomes president, he's sworn in, but then it loses over the next two years, huge supporters, right? It loses uh, Duncan Hunter, 
right? Because he pleaded guilty to corruption. And Michael Flynn, who was forced to resign as the national security advisor. And so with their fall, you would think that, okay, maybe, you know, they had previously played key roles in getting and advocating for Palantir. Hunter had, you know, yelled, he was a representative in Congress, a former Marine reservist. He was elected in 2008, basically, you know, attacked the army senior leadership for not letting Palantir provide its product, right, to the army, right? And, and, uh, Michael Flynn, you know, was was head of was going to be head of uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and then eventually, you know, National Security Advisor. Right, so huge, huge uh, surrogates to have loses both of them, but was able to gain this contract eventually, the DCGSA uh, replacement contract, which was you know eighty eight hundred seventy six million dollars. Then it renewed the ICE contract, right, where it was used uh, to. You know, for Trump's deportation machine and now Biden's deportation machine. Um, and then the human health and services gave it like a no con, a no contest bid uh, to track COVID data. And then the Veterans Affairs Administration uh, also provided a contract to, you know, track and analyze COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, areas, right? So it, it, it's interesting to step back, look at the lay line that they're constantly gaining the contracts. They lost those two key people, but then Thiel himself was able to also place people like Michael Krastios, right? The former chief of staff of his as the CTO for the White House, right? Mm-hmm. And one of Trump's top technology advisors, right? And it's important to note as they do in that piece, as a sidebar to this larger piece that we're focusing on, right? Krastios before he ascended to be the chief technology officer for the Trump administration. Um, and the main technologist, right, was a 33-year-old with an undergraduate degree in political science, right? Nothing wrong with just having an undergraduate degree, but my guy, if you're running tech policy for the most powerful empire in human history, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, and he replaced a dude who was like this a NASA administrator with a PhD in aerospace engineering. So it's, uh, it's just a little interesting that they still managed to eat a pretty fucking well at that dinner table, right? At that, ta- they got a seat at the table, and, it's, and it became a buffet, basically. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know the the way that like these government contracts tend to work is, um, you know, once you get in, it, it's like the mafia, right? You made man, you're <laughs> able to get more and more contracts. Uh, it's hard to get in. Um, but once you're in, you're in. And this, this is what Till was able to do is pull, you know, help pull a lot of strings to get Palantir, uh, a foot in the door. And then it could just run wild, right? It could just start filling. It could, it could fill its plate at the buffet of, of contracts from all kinds of government agencies because it had gotten in the door. Um, and, you know, through that extension, Till himself was eaten real well. So, you know, Chafkin points out that by the fall of 2020, published estimates were putting Till's personal net worth at around $5 billion, roughly double what it had been before Trump was elected. But those who know Till say that even these estimates were probably way too conservative and that his true net worth was closer to $10 billion, possibly much more. Um, and the reason why it's unclear is 
partly because he had quietly, uh, as Chafkin writes, he had quietly accumulated stakes in a handful of private companies with exceedingly high valuations, including the online payment startup Stripe. Um, mm-hmm. A person close to Till figures his net worth uh, or his share is worth at least $1.4 or $1.5 billion of Stripe alone. But it's also difficult to know how much Peter Till is actually worth because he shields a large percentage of his investment assets from taxes of any kind. Um, and so this is, you know, Chafkin gives a rundown of a strategy that ProPublica uh, uh, wrote a, a, a much longer and more detailed article about called um, the, the Lord of the Roths <laughs> because it's about how Peter Till uses this you know, legal, but very, uh, uh, still like very, very shady strategy of parking a lot of his wealth, uh, inside an investment vehicle known as a Roth IRA. And now, you know, Roth IRAs are, are designed to be these tax free retirement accounts for middle class and lower middle class workers, not people like Peter Till, right? Like contributions to your Roth IRA are capped at just $6,000 per year, right? So this is, this is telling you who this is aimed at, right? People that could have, you know, annually six thousand, up to $6,000 of, of, of money laying around to invest. The, the way that the Roth IRA works is that it shields that money from any taxes um, as long as you don't access it until you know, until your ret- until retirement age, which you know Peter Till is getting very close to that age uh, of being able to empty out his Roth IRA um, tax free. What you can do is it gives you this like pool of money um, in this in this uh, Roth IRA account that you can use to buy stock. Uh, in, in companies. Importantly, these have to be companies that you don't control, right? You are just a, like a retail investor playing the stock market. What Peter Till ended up, uh, doing, you know, big, you know, uh, big, big props to the, to the tax lawyers. Yo, this is where the real innovation, <laughs> this is where the real innovation money. happens is, uh, you know. is tax lawyers, right? And yeah. hiding tax money. fraud. I mean, avoidance. Avoidance. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is that real innovation is uh, finding finding legal loopholes uh, and complex financial investment or vehicles to to hide your money from the government. We'll throw a link to this ProPublica piece. You know, we won't get super deep into it, but it is very interesting um, how they lay it out. But essentially, what Till did is starting in 1999. Uh, Till started using his Roth IRA account to buy stock in companies which he was closely associated with, uh, ones that he didn't have controlling interest in per se, but companies like PayPal and Palantir. And he was able to buy these, uh, shares for prices that were, you know, thousands of a penny of, uh, per share, right? Just, just fucking, you know, for free, basically, right? They were just uh-huh. giving him free shares. Um, and all the capital gains, uh, from those shares of, of stocks and companies that have skyrocketed in valuation in large part because of Peter Till's own doings, um, ha- you know, are all tax free. And so, uh, you know, th- this, this hinges on 
an extremely narrow interpretation of what it means to control a company, as Chafkin points out, right? So like, technically, Till did not own more than 50% of PayPal at the time of the Roth investment. And so legally speaking, he didn't control PayPal, even though in practice, uh, he had final say on everything the company did, uh, you know, Chafkin points out that at one point in 2001, he threatened to resign as CEO of PayPal unless the nominally independent board of directors issued him millions of shares. Uh, and the board agreed because according to three people familiar with the negotiations, it had no choice. Till's resignation would have killed the company. Quote, it was pay me or I'm going to shoot myself, recalls one of the people. (laughs) And so so the board of PayPal uh, issued 4.5 million shares uh, for Till to purchase, lending him the money for the transactions, right? So he got that. He got those shares for free. Uh, That's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Look. Oh, if he wasn't so fucking evil, it'd be so. It'd be even funnier. It would be like the. It'd be like Adam Newman blowing up a IPO and then holding the company when he did blow up the IPO and held the company hostage for a billion, multi-billion dollar payout. If I remember correctly. Oh yeah, amazing. I get a. I get strong kindergartner energy, like in the toy aisle vibes off of this. Just like, just, just this absolute like unhinged lunacy of like, I'm going to fuck everything up unless you give me money. And a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, no, this is my little brother. When uh, he and uh, my other brother are building something together, but it, my, you know, they're two different people. They have two different visions for the thing. And so my little brother, he used to always do this thing. He'd be like, "You don't want to build it." Like this, I want to build it like this. He's like, no, and then he goes quiet for a second, and he breaks it. He just smashes it, like, like with the calm serenity of a psychopath, because he's a child. <laughs> just smashes it and walks away every time. <laughs> if I ever heard silence when they were playing, I knew what, what would happen in a few seconds. <laughs> And yeah, that's what Till is doing, but uh, uh, at the billions of dollars level uh, and and with with the help of some extremely well-paid tax lawyers. (laughs) So, you know, this is what Till has done, right? Is he's he's accumulated just, you know, a Roth Roth IRA account. Again, a reminder, this is a tax-free investment vehicle designed for like lower middle class people, right? To, To make a little bit like a you know a little tiny robin's egg you know for 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 them to to you know still be impoverished when they retire but you know they they got a little something to pay for like two months of medication <laughs> you know but till has weaponized uh this vehicle this investment vehicle as a way to completely avoid the IRS uh entirely and you know i i think this also starts getting to this like the, the 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 pure venalness of Till that has you know corrupted his soul in such a way that has made him a, a very paranoid person. Like I, I think it's a really interesting picture of Peter Till that Max Chafkin points uh, in the latter half of this uh, uh, of of this excerpt from the, the biography of Peter Till as a person who is completely consumed by paranoia that the IRS is going to make him pay taxes. It's <laughs> <is> so funny. It's <laughs> so funny. We are over here worried 
about this guy, whether he's doing blood transfusions, about whether he's planning like a far right wing usurp usurpation of the of uh, liberalism, whether he's trying to arm you know or or inculcate an ideology that might be used by like you know uh, far right wing fringes of society, and he's just like the government's gonna take away my fucking money, man. I'm <laughs> I'm gonna shoot the tax man. I'm gonna shoot. It's like the scene in Iron Rand where. Uh, someone, tr- the tax guy, a tax collector pulls up and tries to get taxes. <laughs> and I swear to God, they just throw him down the fucking stairs and they kill him. <laughs> it's just like, I, I don't know. I could see, I could see Peter Thiel going to jail for killing a tax man. Like, <laughs> I can see it. My man's putting a, my man's sending Agent 47 out on the whole IRS. Just putting the on. Should you choose to accept it? Infiltrate the IRS and delete the tax records about me. (laughs) I feel like we're pitching a movie here where like uh, billionaires just get tired of politicians ruining their fun. So they hire all the world's best assassins to go take all the the politicians out that piss them off. I mean, I'm sure that I think that actually is a movie where a guy and a girl go off. No, they kill celebrities. That's that's what it is. I don't remember the name of that movie. You know, the the largest infiltration of the IRS was by the... um, fucking church of scientology right <laughs> alleged no I, wait i can say it was because it was <laughs> they won't come out they can't they got caught they can't come after us but uh but uh you know look out listeners uh because very soon you may see theo capital uh shopping around for a startup that might do an even bigger Infiltration <laughs> of the IRS. My man's hiring Tom Cruise, the whole like, you know, <laughs> the Mission Impossible team. Yeah, dude. That's actually what uh, No Time to Die is about. It's mm. infiltrating the IRS. Robbie Malik <laughs> is playing, is like the, the only good tax man or something. I don't know. It's a superhero called The Auditor. <laughs> okay, what if, what, <laughs> what if it's, um, he pulls up and he's like, you expect me to beg Mr. Bond? And he's like, no, I expect you to pay your taxes. But yeah, so this ain't far off though, because as the, you know, the portrait of Till that Chafkin points is, is yeah, a man that we can trace like all of his, like all of his power moves, you know, all the influence peddling and politics um, that he's been doing, you know, uh, you know, continuing to now, but, you know, with the Trump administration, all that as, as, uh, as ways of uh, ensuring that he can be, he can finally retire and live out his dreams as this like Ayn Randian superhero or this like caricature of a, of a libertarian, right. Who like, yeah, the tax, like paying taxes is, you know, the, the most unjust thing that he could think would ever happen to him. And, and uh, you know, Chafkin points out that uh, uh, U.S. tax authorities began an audit of Till's retirement savings. Till was never sanctioned. The audit never turned up anything illegal, according to a person who discussed it with Till, but it seemed to make him paranoid. All it would take would be a change in the way the IRS interpreted the rules to force him to pay taxes on the entire Roth account, right? We're probably talking about taxes like well into the billions of dollars that he owes uh, on this this Roth account, which again, would only be a percentage of his net net worth, right? But 
but it, that that can, that cannot be abided, right? It's better to reshape uh, the entire world to ensure that uh, none of that money goes into the IRS's coffers. Um, and so, like, uh, you know, it goes on to talk about how it, you know, if if Till violates a single rule, puts a toe in the wrong direction, the government can tax the whole thing. Um, this was scary to Till, according to several longtime employees. They say his vulnerability to a change in tax policy or a shift in IRS enforcement seemed to dominate how he related to people around him. Anxiety uh-huh. about a potential crackdown seemed to be part of his motivation to acquire New Zealand citizenship in 2011 and to support Trump in 2016, according to uh, sources familiar with, with Till's decisions. And so, which is so wild, right? That every, like all of this ludicrous stuff we know about Till, to be able to trace some fundamental core of motivation behind all of these moves that he's been making as avoiding the IRS taxing his Roth IRA account. <laughs> you, you could not write parody or satire <laughs> at this level and have people take you seriously. <laughs> If you told me that this was going to be, if you asked me what are the main drivers of Peter Thiel, uh, rabbit, a fanatic obsession with not paying taxes would not be at the top of my list. Because generally, I just assume that it's like these people just have like, they have people who employ people or whose jobs are to ensure that people minimize the taxes they pay. You have a financial person, you have the staff that just does that. You don't really even have to think about it unless you want to. I would not ever imagine this man is obsessed with it and scared of it, you know, as it, like, I don't, don't, like, they're going to, I don't even know, you know, I don't even understand why he's so scared of it. Maybe it's part of it is on principle, but also part of it is probably just like deep down, you know, the fanaticism and obsession with Ayn Rand, you know, it just rot, it just rotted his fucking brain. You know, like this is your brain on objectivism, right? You sit up, wake up at night <laughs> with a gun pointed at the door, waiting for the government to take your fucking taxes. <laughs> My man's house is booby trap, like home alone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, come and get it. Come and get it. <laughs> this also reminds me of um, uh, Leon Black, uh, the co-founder and and former CEO of the of the major private equity firm Apollo Global Management. Um, claimed that the money he paid Jeffrey Epstein, the $158 million he paid Jeffrey Epstein was for tax-related advice. Right. (laughs) He's just so good. He's so good with the markets and numbers. Yeah. (laughs) It's just, Um, you know, I I want all these people to be put on a massive bulldozer and shoved into hell. Or the Marina Trench, you know, like it's just, it's really, it's, it, ah, it just boggles my mind. It really does. You know, I wonder what he's doing with his uh, tax money. Maybe he's growing like an adrenochrome uh, factory. That's just the thing I'm going to say about Peter Thiel now. You know, he's allegedly, I can't say for real (laughs) because allegedly, you know, rumor has it that Peter Thiel is using his uh, tax savings, deferred taxes, this tax-deferred retirement money uh, to grow adrenochrome. You didn't hear it from me, though. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs>
No, he won't drop his skincare routine, man. That's like, <laughs> drop, drop the skincare routine, man. Let us know. Just, is it foreskins? Is it a <laughs> You know? Is it peach birds? Come on, man. Let us Yo, know. Who's that queen that just like did this sat in a in a vat of blood? Elizabeth Bathory. <laughs> Virgin blood. You know how all his fucking startups have some stupid fucking Lord of the Rings reference in the worst way? The next one is going to reference her. Mark my words. <laughs> the, next, the next blood one, it's going to reference her. And if it doesn't, and you see one that references her, he's behind it. I'd bet anything mm-hmm. that he's behind mm-hmm. it. Has, has there been a Project Uruk yet? <laughs> I mean, is it like the, the cloning, like the, the clone soldiers that's going to be like the next like big startup is like we figured out how to clone all the best soldiers from the past world wars we call it project Garuk because they just they birthed from mud and they're ready to go kill sir i would not <laughs> want that i want i would not want theo money from near that because it would be like oh for some reason they're all blonde with blue eyes and they're really tall i don't know what that <laughs> happened with that that's wild that's crazy and in and, and, and steve bannon's words they all look like male models <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah oh really what kind of models what kind of models steven <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm in no position to shame somebody about how they look, but you guys we're male models compared to Steve Bannon. Let's just be honest. <laughs> right, but, but Steve Bannon is talking about a very specific um, um, Germanic, Germanic, you know, Aryan <laughs> uh, stock of uh, of model uh, that will also happen to be the master race. I mean, Allegedly. also, yeah, I mean, that, that does raise the fact that, uh, you know, Till talks, Till does kind of talk about himself as a, you know, an immigrant because, you know, he was born in Germany and he also went to a, I believe it was an all boys boarding school in South Africa. So you know who else did? <laughs> <laughs> How you think PayPal came about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was PayPal doing during World War II? <laughs> 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 a part-time boarding school shenanigans <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh yeah I, I said an all boys boarding school but you know the uh implicitly all white as well obviously. yeah uh, we obviously. left we left for some reason before 1987 because of you know the political climate <laughs> you know nothing nothing to do with integration and the end of apartheid nothing <laughs> Till's tra- Chill, Till Trace and his family lying back. He did his uh, 20, 23 and Me and found some Argentinian uh, in his club. <laughs> <line. laughs> why, why did Papa's great grandfather have a submarine? What? <laughs> What's up with that? <laughs> <laughs> why, why? Why is Grandmama from Buenos Aires? <laughs> but her last name. It's German. Interesting. <laughs> Let's wrap this up. Uh, it, you know, looking to the future, right? So. So Peter Till, right? We talked about his political dealings. He he um really removed himself from Trump's twenty uh you know Trump's reelection campaign, seeing it as 
uh, he called it a bunch of Gilligans, right? Like the, the he called that campaign the USS Minnow from the Gilligan's Island, you know, saying that, you know, it was it was essentially, you know, he distanced himself from it. And it was a bunch of fools that was going, you know, was capsizing. But that's not the limitations of his political aspirations. Of course not. What he's gone on to do, and we talked about like Blake Masters, right? We've talked about uh, J.D. Vance, right? You know, important to note that, you know, J.D. Vance uh, is, you know, uh, running uh, for office in Ohio. Um, Till has given you know, $10 million donations to uh, the potential Senate candidacy of J.D. Vance. He's given $10 million do- uh, donations to uh, Blake Masters Senate candidacy in uh, in Arizona. He's also given a bunch of money to, uh, you know, right-wing populists like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. Um, you know, what he's doing uh, to quote Chafkin, right, a Republican-controlled Senate, especially one where Till's politics are ascendant, would also be ideal for Till's government contractors and for protecting the tax advantage status of his Roth IRA. It all comes back to getting them contracts and shooting the tax man. Um, but you know, he, he's, <laughs> he's spreading, you know, he's spreading his his nut out, right? He's, uh, you know, he, he's... He's not putting all his money, you know, all his support in one basket, you know, like he did with Trump. He's spreading it out, uh, particularly the Senate, right? He, he's he's like, nah, man. The 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 House representatives, that's small shit for me. That, I'm I'm too big for that. Instead, I'd much rather own some senators. I'd much rather have them in my back pocket. Till or Chafkin uh, mentions, you know, rightfully so. That you know, quote, but masters and Vance offer more than Trump uh, to offer more to Till than Trump did, because unlike the former president, they're highly disciplined ideologues who seem committed to popularizing their patrons' political agenda. And even better, masters and Vance both work for Till, right? They are they work they are directly employed um, by Till in different ways, and. Uh, um, you know that I think I think that points to the future of Peter Till's political aspirations. Here is right; he doesn't want a buffoon whose interests, uh, you know, coincidentally align with his. He wants these highly trained lieutenants, these foot soldiers, who he owns and controls, to actually hold office, and through that, he'll channel his power. Mm-hmm. And it might work. It might work. I mean, it very well might work. <laughs> uh, I don't, you know, I, I don't think Vance is going to win in Ohio. I think he's polling extremely low. But so I think 3%. Blake Masters is actually, I, I haven't looked at polling, but my sense is that Blake Masters has a much higher um, chance in Arizona. And, 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 it, and at the very least is making a name for himself, like Vance has been making a name for, him, for himself as well. You know, I think it really, it it shows, it shows Till's interest here as well is that Till's not interested in holding, holding position. He wants to hold power, right? Right, right. Power comes from controlling the people who hold the positions. And also just making room for people who share your ideas and will just much more easily be amicable to meeting you Mm -hmm. or meeting you, meeting you because they share the same ideas with you, same friends as you, the same school as you, the same workplace as you, you know, making, establishing Thiel and his network as conduits to power is a good way to ensure he doesn't even have to pick winners anymore, that they'll just have to go through the network in some parts. 
That's right. They'll have to go kiss the ring. It makes him this obligatory passage point for any right wing, you know, nationalist who wants to hold power. You got to go kiss Peter Till's ring. And, you know, he's hate to say it. He's kind of succeeding. <laughs> yeah. I think that'll bring us to an end. You know, I, I'm, I am looking forward to reading uh, this this biography of Peter Tillich. Yes. I think it's going to be yeah. really interesting. I was kind of, I have to admit, I was kind of put off by it at first because of the New York Times book review. The the New York Times book review of it, which is very you know very short, it wasn't a long excerpt like this, kind of put me off a little bit just because like the way that it framed it was like, ah, is there anything really new here? And it also had a point in there where um, the the New York Times nonfiction book reviewer, the staff reviewer, you know, said, quote, Till likes to use the word builder, Ayn Rand's preferred term for an entrepreneur. He, he has referred wistfully to the mid-century days of the space race, and according to Chafkin, has succeeded in bringing the military-industrial complex to Silicon Valley. And that turned me off. I was like, yeah. we yeah. know Till didn't do that shit. Yeah. It's been well, there. Yeah. It was born in it, right? Oh, you merely adapted the military <laughs> complex. I was born in it. <laughs> I don't know what that accent was. But, <laughs> but so that turned me off because I was like, hold up, you wait a minute. I don't know. I can't do a bad one, you know. <laughs> Jer- I think Jeremy can do yeah. a good one. Holdings <laughs> Company. There we go. <laughs> We've been putting all of our money into Roth accounts since the beginning of time. <laughs> you have merely only followed me in my mischief. <laughs> but, That's good. So, so that turned me off because I was like, "Hold up, is Ch- if Chafkin's saying that Peter Till like brought the military to Silicon Valley? Because that's just wrong. That's like that is that is un uh uh you know that 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 like that's that's you just can't can't forgive that. It's unforgivably yeah. wrong. But I think that was the reviewer who wrote that, or that was like their take, and not what Chafkin mm-hmm. argues. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like uh I like I, I tweeted about it, and and somebody snitch tagged. Chafkin in my on my tweet, <laughs> <laughs> but he came in. He came in and he was like, you know, he tried to clear the air and he was like, oh no, that's not what I'm saying. Like, you know, for for what it's worth, like read the book. And this was before the excerpt in Bloomberg came out. And so, um, I'm actually like the the Bloomberg excerpt is actually quite good. So I'm, I I will read the book for sure. And and uh, I you know I think that is also just a, a larger gripe. I think you're right here Ed, that this is a gripe about having um you know, reviewers on staff that do all nonfiction books and have no like expertise or knowledge in the book's Mm -hmm. like subject area. Um, And so they kind of make these like wrong generalizations based on their own reading. But that's a, that's a gripe for a different time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) But uh, yeah, no, Peter Till, long, long dude. They have his day in the, in the sun. Right. Mm -hmm. And, And, Oh, Oh, I, I see his skin is bubbling. It's boiling. Somebody, somebody put the sh- some shade on this man. He can't stand it. <laughs> put some blood on his skin. Put some blood on his skin. 
I wonder if he got the okay with the vampire can- council there in uh, Wellington before they let him move to New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. I hear they only have like a certain amount of vampires that are allowed in the country. They have very strict uh, ecological and bio uh, and it- they have very strict ecological protocols over there, you know. <laughs> you can only, per capita, the vampires, you can't have too many of them or else they'll eat too many of the young, right? All right, now I got a movie idea. It's time for a reboot of Blade. And I'm, I'm casting you, I'm casting you, Ed, in the, in the Wesley Snipes role. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's about hunting down the vampires of Capitol, right? And, 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 and we know, you know, Marx loved himself a, a gothic metaphor, uh, talking about vampire or talking about Capitol um, as vampire. I accept this duty, you know, if you insist. I will, <laughs> I will slay as many of these vampires as possible. <laughs> if you insist, you, you will be the daywalker, and right. you are the daywalker. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap it up. Uh, bring this episode to a close. Thank everybody for listening. Uh, you can find us speaking of the premium episodes at Patreon.com/slash/ThisMachineKills for another episode every single week. You know, we got some some really great stuff planned coming up. We got we're gonna do we're gonna be doing starting another uh, TMK book club. Uh, you know, focusing on a on an excellent book. Uh, you know, more more on that soon. But lots lots there. Find us at patreoncom slash kills. Uh, and until then, thank you for listening, and we'll catch you later. Adios. Dracula.